This is uh, Matthew's Gospel, the fifth chapter, verses 1 through 12. And the scripture says, uh, you're blessed. When Jesus saw his ministry drawing huge crowds, he climbed a hillside. Those who were apprenticed to him, the, the committed, climbed with him. Arriving at a quiet place, he sat down and he taught his climbing companions. And this is what he said. You're blessed when you're at the end of your rope. When there's less of you, there's more of God and his rule. You're blessed when you feel like you've lost what is most dear to you. Only then can you be embraced by the one most dear to you. You're blessed when you're content with just who you are. No more, no less. That's the moment you find yourself proud owners of everything that can't be bought. And you're blessed when you've worked up a good appetite from God. He's He's food and drink in the best meal you'll ever eat. And you're blessed when you uh, care. At the moment of being careful, you'll find yourselves cared for. You're blessed when you get your inside world, your mind and your heart put right. Then you can see God in the outside world. And you're blessed when you can show people how to cooperate instead of compete or fight. That's when you dis- discover who you really are and your place in God's family. You're blessed when your commitment to God provokes persecution. The persecution drives you even deeper into God's kingdom. Not only that, count yourselves blessed every time people put you down or throw you out or speak lies about you to discredit you. What it means is that the truth is too close for for comfort and they're uncomfortable. You can be glad when that happens. Give a cheer even, for though they don't like it, I do, and all heaven applauds. And know that you're in good company. My prophets and witnesses have always gotten into this kind of trouble. This is the word of the Lord. Wow, that's some passage of scripture. Uh, We're going to chew on this for uh, about nine weeks. Chasing happiness is our theme for these coming weeks. Chasing happiness. What does that mean to you? I mean, what images uh, conjure up in your mind when you think of chasing after happiness? My first thought was the book of Ecclesiastes, and I kind of reached out to see what King Solomon said. Uh, and I was struck by some of his first words. Everything is meaningless, completely meaningless. Sorry for the promising, bright, cheery start to a series of messages. Everything is meaningless. Solomon, the writer, doesn't leave it alone. I mean, I think there were times in his life when he was really chasing happiness and he couldn't quite, he couldn't quite get there. What do people get for all of their hard work? He said, under the sun. Generations come and generations go, but the earth never changes. Sure sounds exhausting. And here's Solomon again. Everything is wearisome beyond description. No matter how much we see, we're never satisfied. Well, Solomon can be a bit of a downer, but that's what I think of when I consider the theme chasing happiness. Solomon and his journey. Uh, It's kind of like throwing darts at jelly on the wall. It's just really hard to pin it down. Chasing happiness. But we're headed to the mountain. It's not to, to hear King Solomon, but it's to hear King Jesus. And uh, he wants to speak to us in these weeks about happiness or 
Maybe the better word here is blessedness. He wants to speak about the state of being blessed. Dr. John Stott, the late pastor and former chaplain to the Queen, uh, but a wonderful scholar, commented, and he said, the Sermon on the Mount is probably the best-known part of the teaching of Jesus, although arguably it's the least understood. And certainly it's, it's the least obeyed. Uh, he went on to say that it's the nearest thing to a manifesto that he has ever uttered, for it's his own description of what he wanted his followers to be and to do. Words of John Stott. Well, we're not going to the mountain for the whole sermon, but just a part of it. And uh, even part of it, uh, I think, can be really overwhelming. Sermon on the Mount is in Matthew chapter 5 through 7. If you have a Bible in front of you, you notice that all f- chapter 5 and 6 and 7 of Matthew is in red, red print, because that's the, what, that's the sermon Jesus spoke. Now that's, that's what he said. And uh, the scripture, actually, the Sermon on the Mount only takes about 15 minutes to read. I know people ask, well, if it only took Jesus 15 minutes to say all of this, why does it take preachers hours and hours to preach it? <laughs> well, I'm sorry for bringing that up, but uh, we're not Jesus, and uh, we don't seem to be able to cut through all the stuff and just say it. It's fascinating to try to plumb a little of the depths of, of the Sermon on the Mount, um, and if you, if you, the more you examine it, the more you see the depth of his thought. As I said, we're not going to attempt to scale the whole teaching of the Sermon on the Mount, uh, chapters 5 through 7, but we are going to zero in on Matthew chapter 5, 1 to 12. And you know that those verses are called the Beatitudes. Matthew chapter 5, first two verses, It says, one day as he saw the crowds gathering, Jesus went up on the mountainside and he sat down. His disciples gathered around him and he began to teach them. Some of you have had the privilege to visit the general area where they believe the mountainside is, uh, the Mount of Beatitudes in northern Israel. It's just very close to the Sea of Galilee. And Capernaum is just only a, a short three kilometers away. Uh, And you can see the Golan Heights from the mountainside. It's a beautiful, beautiful place. Very, very scenic. And it's a much bigger hill than behind our home. I I can assure you that. But just a couple of observations from the text. First of all, uh, Jesus sat down to teach the disciples and the crowds that had gathered. He sat down. Uh, Generally, he was uh, always sitting when he was teaching. I mean, that was typical for the day. The rabbis always sat. They, they stood to read the scripture and they sat uh, to teach the people as they came together. Uh, I don't think it's all that easy to sit and preach. Uh, maybe you'd get onto it. It's not the most comfortable position in the world. It seems to me you could talk a little bit louder if you stood, but on the other hand, Jesus probably sat on that mountainside and his voice carried down the, the mountain uh, to the Sea of Galilee and their people were gathered and they were listening to him communicate these amazing truths. Some years ago, we did a bit of a demographic study to see who lives in our community. I doubt Jesus ever did that because he knew that he had a message that was transformational for all people everywhere at any time. And it wasn't just for the people who lived around the Sea of Galilee. His message was so life-giving and transformational to the whole world. 
Have you ever been in a service when uh, after the service was over, people didn't quite know what to do because they'd met God in such a wonderful way at the service and they didn't get up and leave. They didn't go home. They didn't go out into the lobby. They didn't, they didn't go to brunch or lunch. Uh, they just seemed to linger and they stayed because God was doing something in, in them and they just wanted to stay there for a while. And that was the case when Jesus preached, when he had communicated the whole Sermon on the Mount. Just everyone was just overwhelmed with what they'd heard. And uh, here are the words, actually, that close off his sermon. And they're the comments of Matthew. It says, uh, when Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching, for he taught with real authority, quite unlike the teachers of the religious law. I mean, the teachers of the law made their sermons snorville. Oh, that is dry, so dry. But when Jesus came along, he made it live, and he spoke with such authority. And everything he said just kind of cut right to the heart like a hot knife cutting through butter. He just nailed it. Second thing you should notice is that while the crowd was gathering, his disciples also gathered right around him. So you have a couple of concentric circles here. First, there's the disciples, and then there's the, the outside layer, which is the crowd. But the inner circle is his disciples, and uh, and Jesus wanted to teach them. But all the other people, they listened in. And that's why it says in, in the verse we just read that uh, the crowds were amazed at his teaching. So it's kind of cool that Jesus is addressing his disciples, Uh and by the way, the word disciple means learner, mathetes. Isn't that a great word? I, uh, I like it because it reminds us that we're all disciples because we're all learners. And you never get to the point on this earth where you shift from being a learner. We're always learners, always disciples. Uh, so as you've joined us today for our service, you too are learners disciples, uh, followers of Christ, people who are learning the way. But the crowds were learning too, and some of them were disciples, and some of them were hearing Jesus speak, and they were moved in their hearts, and they became disciples or learners. Mostly, I guess we speak to disciples when we come to a worship service. Uh, but you know what? Usually that's not distractive to the curious or to the seekers, to those who are asking the questions. Now, how do I make sense of this life? And who is God? And, and who is Jesus? We believe that the powerful, authoritative Word of God has a peculiar power to awaken seekers to the truth and to the beauty of Christ, even when it's addressed primarily to learners or disciples. Now, one more observation before we say just a general word about the Beatitudes. If you take a quick scan of the Beatitudes, you probably are inclined to say, I'm not sure I understand all that Jesus is saying here. But what I grasp at first glance is that I, I know I would never hear this kind of message anywhere else in the world. This is just not how things go down in our world. It's so different. These Beatitudes speak to our value system, and they cut across the grain of our culture in dramatic fashion. 
We live in a day when image rates much higher than character. I mean, I have to look good. Doesn't matter too much what's inside my heart, but do I look good? And so in today's world, image, image is everything. These verses are not at all about looking good. Image is not the issue. Character is the issue. And making a difference in this world is the issue. And a pandemic like we're experiencing these days just magnifies the importance of these qualities that we find in the Beatitudes. Uh, I'm sure people can read the Beatitudes and say, well, go ahead if you want and live out the Beatitudes. You'll just be a doormat for the rest of your life. I mean, people will walk all over you. I mean, don't you think if you're too merciful to others, they'll get the idea that they can do what they want to you and and uh, you you won't fight back. You'll just sit and take it because you're merciful. Man, that's a recipe for disaster. I mean, you're working on a team project and your team members know how you're built. They know how you're, you'll always pull your end of the deal. Well, let's just let him do it. I'll slack off and you go ahead and, and, uh, and you just do your thing and have at it. Yeah. And yes, when people decide to persecute you, you just learn to take it. People are stepping on your good name. People telling lies about you. You just take it. Doormat. <laughs> These beatitudes are something else. You have to ask, can we really live meaningfully in this world and subscribed to these beatitudes? That's not what Jesus says. I mean, he says, you will be blessed if you live this way. This is a whole different lifestyle. I mean, God says, blessed are the poor in spirit. You know what I learned growing up? Blessed are the achievers. I learned you have to get out and take control and exert your power and take things into your own hands. Jesus says, blessed are the meek. But we say, blessed are the powerful. Our sense is that the more power you have, the more impact you have. The more leverage you have to change things in this world, especially towards your own favor. We get the feeling from our culture that the person who pushes himself or herself and is able to ride roughshod over other people to their own advantage. That means that person inherits the world of business and makes his way to the top. <laughs> Dog-eat-dog world. We identify humility with weakness. It takes humility to admit that someone on our team can do the job better than we can and therefore deserves the promotion. That's not easy. Uh, a young actor had... Uh, been practicing, had a tremendous rehearsal. He'd been having wonderful rehearsals. So gifted, uh, gifted young man. And then came the opening night and he made a terrible blunder. And he went to his dressing room and he was moaning and groaning at his performance and as the star of the show came in. And, and he was feeling so alone and feeling so uh, undone. And the young actor said, I'm sorry, I let you down. I ruined my career. I think I'm going to call it quits. And the star replied, just who do you think you are? That you should not make mistakes. I make them all the time. We all do. Only God does not make them. And you're not God. Now go back out there tomorrow night and perform. Ah, being able to forgive ourselves. Humility of heart. 
Jesus says, blessed are the pure in heart. <laughs> but we say, blessed are the uninhibited. I lay it on the line. Put people in their place. Intimidate if you need to. I mean, what does it take to get out in front? I loved the writing of one gentleman who said, uh, suppose we were to come up with a set of Beatitudes for the 21st century. What if we made a list of the kinds of people who seem to be well off, who seem to have it made by today's standard? It might go something like this. Blessed are the rich and famous because they can always get a seat at the best restaurants. Or blessed are the good-looking for they shall be on the cover of People magazine. Our blessed are those who party, for they know how to have fun. Our blessed are those who take uh, first place in the division, for they shall have momentum going into the playoffs. Our blessed are the movers and the shakers, for they shall make a name for themselves. Blessed are those who demand their rights, for they shall not be overlooked. Blessed are the healthy and fit, because they don't mind being seen in a swimsuit. Blessed are those who make it to the top because they get to look down on everyone else. Ah, that's not even close to what Jesus said. What he said is something else. Can we really live meaningfully in this world and subscribe to what he said? That's what Jesus says. He says, you'll be blessed if you live this way. This is a whole different lifestyle. And our Lord implies that when you live out the real Beatitudes in daily life, People will sit up and they will take notice. John Stackhouse is a professor of religious studies at Crandale University, which is in Moncton. And he wrote an article, just came out, just, uh, just got it in the last few days. And he said after grading theology exams for another year, he commented that, he, that generally speaking, most Canadian students would say, yes, Jesus is a good man who taught us uh, about God taught us about being good to other people. He performed some wonders, or at least he was himself so wonderful that his disciples later made up stories about him to illustrate uh, in a mythical way his impressive sanctity, kindness, and ability to evoke good in other people. Oh, and he said, uh, in all the exams I've corrected, he said people have say things about heaven and hell and would say, if you know Christ, the main payoff for being a a good Christian is going to heaven when you die. But he said, there's just no sense of the importance of the cross and the resurrection. No sense of importance of development of character, sanctification, or the work of the Holy Spirit. Even the church hardly even ever shows up in their comments about the Christian life. John Stackhouse wrote, pastors, ministry leaders, parents, teachers, we face a daunting challenge in 2020 as we try to help Canadians understand what Christianity actually teaches before we begin to help other people actually believe it. Uh, I love to listen to Dr. E.V. Hill preach. He was the pastor in the Watts District of L.A. for many years, pastor of a large Baptist church. He's in heaven now, but uh, like many African-American preachers, he had a cadence to his preaching. And he always had us on the edge of our seats waiting for the next word. That, uh, because he understood how to communicate the word and, and thoughts and ideas. And I do remember uh, he made, he made uh, sermons so interesting. He would build on one sentence and after another. And 
I remember him preaching to many of us conservative North American Baptist folks years ago uh, in in Los Angeles, and it was finally like he got tired of us being so passive. And he said, uh, and friends, I don't care who you are, amen belongs there. And uh, well, that would, of course, make us all laugh, but uh, he reminded us to get into this. It was challenging. Now, we were into it. We just we were just weren't saying anything to let him know that we're really that we were really involved as well and we were thinking this through i think there should have been many amens when jesus preached this from the mountainside it was revolutionary the kind of information all canadians and everyone on the planet should understand and i don't think there was any boredom when jesus preached i mean he had a meter to his uh, to this sermon uh, a repetitive meter blessed are Blessed are, blessed are, blessed are, blessed are. And, and before you know it, you know, you're kind of starting to say it with him. Blessed are. And nine times he uses the word blessed are. And then he describes those who are blessed. And it doesn't simply mean happy or laughing or cheering. It has in mind well-being. It's the sense of being comfortable in your, in your heart. Healthy. Being well in your soul. It's well with my soul wholesome living. This is the way the king would have you live your life. So beatitudes, the word is simply the Latin word for the word blessed. What is the Greek word for blessing? Makarius. It, it means real, deeply fulfilled, in touch with the fruitfulness of God. The person uh, who has recognized the counterfeits of the world and not invested in them, but has invested in Christ's kingdom. You are so blessed. At a junior high camp uh, talent show, uh, this one kid wanted to sing, and and he was a little challenged in, in certain areas, and he wanted to sing a song by Michael W. Smith. And uh, his song was called Friends Are Friends Forever. You know the song. And he has tape with him, and he one of his, uh, he put it in the boom box, and he, and he hit play, and the, the music starts playing, and it was it was just awful, I guess, the way to really describe it. He was way off keys, all over the map vocally, rhythmically. He wasn't with it. And uh, all the junior high kids just started snickering, and it was really a bad scene. But there was this gal called Jessica. She jumps up from the very back row. She runs down the aisle. She jumps up on the stage. She throws her arms around Jonathan, grabs the microphone, and starts singing with him. Friends are friends forever, because the Lord's the Lord of them. And a friend will not say never, and you know the song. She sang the whole song with him. And when they got done, there wasn't a dry eye in the camp that night. Yeah, friends, were called to be different. We recognize the counterfeits of the world, and we decide to live another way. We're called to be different in, in restaurants. We're called to be different at the ball field. We're called to be different at the go- golf course. We're called to be different in the classroom. We're called to be different in the office. You know, the very first sermon Jesus ever preached, he said some countercultural things about being different and how being different brings true satisfaction and fulfillment and happiness into your life. Matthew 5, the Beatitudes. This is countercultural teaching. And they're amazing words from Jesus. And we look forward over these coming weeks to be able to open our hearts to, to these truths.
Well, I uh, invite you to uh, come around the table of the Lord. Uh, uh, we all know that Jesus was a great teacher, and the things that he said were revolutionary. But listen, he was not only a great teacher. I mean, he lived the Beatitudes. He modeled them. He could have defended himself in those dark days when the Jewish leaders wanted to crucify him, but he didn't. He could have said, uh, I'm not taking the way of the cross, but that's why he came to die for us. Uh, his revolutionary message was punctuated with a life that was freely given for the sins of all of us. And this teacher went to the cross and he suffered and he died taking all of our sins upon him. Paul says when we were utterly helpless, Christ came at just the right time and he died for us sinners. Now, most people would not be willing to die for an upright person, though someone might perhaps be willing to die for a person who is especially good. But God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. So I want to invite you to worship him this morning by joining in a time of remembering what Christ did for us. I, I hope you've had time to gather a cracker or a piece of bread and some juice. You know, communion is like a photo album in the sense that it's a time to remember. And when you turn the pages on a photo album, your mind goes back to all those special memories. And as we take the bread and the cup, our minds reflect on the way that Jesus Christ loved us and forgave us, gave us a brand new start. And it makes us thankful. So let's take the bread and be thankful for it. Uh, we are uh, thankful that the suffering of Jesus was transformational for us. With his broken body, he was saying, it's for you. It's for you. So take the bread and remember, it's for you. This is my body broken for you. Let's eat together. And together we take the cup. And we're thankful for this cup. We're thankful that the suffering of Jesus was transformational for us. And with his blood, uh, he was saying, it's for you. My blood was poured out for you. So take the cup and remember, it is for you. This is the blood of the new covenant between God and his people. Do this to remember him as often as you drink it. Let's drink together. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your broken body. We thank you for the blood that was spilled on our behalf. We thank you for suffering and dying for us. We thank you that you never quit, but you went all the way to the cross and you suffered in our place. We thank you for who you are, not only a great teacher, but our wonderful Savior. And we give you thanks today in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, the Lord's Supper is a uh, beautiful reminder <clears throat> that by the grace of God, we are the people of God. What we just celebrated, the work of Christ on the cross, is not a ritual, but a reminder of God's love and God's grace. Friends, receive it today in the name that is higher than every other name, the name of Jesus Christ our Lord. God bless you and keep you.